stories of imagination are never far. They still reside in us, guiding us ever forward. Join us now as we journey forward into the past. And here is your host, J.C. Riddell. Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of Forward into the Past. I'm J.C. Rade, your host and narrator, and today we're finishing up the Mortimer DeLand three-part story arc with the conclusion of the 1915 mystery Blood Will Tell, or Nick Carter's play in politics. Nick Carter, as you know, was a major influence on the development of the detective genre. He helped to establish many of the conventions of the detective story, and his influence can be seen in many of the classic detective stories that followed him. For example, Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes was inspired by Nick Carter, and many of the elements of Holmes's character and adventures can be traced back to Nick. Other detective characters who owe a debt to Nick Carter include Dashiell Hammett's Sam Spade, Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe, and Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot. In addition to his influence on literature, Nick Carter also had a significant impact on popular culture. He was featured in films, radio shows, comic books, and even a Broadway play. He was also a popular subject of merchandise, such as toys, games, and clothing. Nick Carter's popularity declined in the mid-20th century, but he has recently seen a resurgence in interest. And I like to think that it is partially due to this podcast. He has been the subject of several new novels and comic books, and he has even been featured in a video game. Nick Carter remains an important figure in the history of the detective genre, and his influence can still be seen in many of the detective stories that are published today. Specifically, Nick Carter influenced the detective genre with the idea of the private detective as a lone wolf who operates outside the law. Nick Carter was a private detective who worked for himself, not for the police. He was often at odds with the law, but he always managed to get the job done. This helped to establish the private detective as a popular character in detective fiction. The seemingly perfect crime. Many of Nick Carter's cases involved seemingly perfect crimes that seemed impossible to solve. This helped to create suspense and excitement in the stories, and it also helped to establish the detective as a brilliant and resourceful investigator. The wrongly accused suspect. A common plot device in Nick Carter's stories was the wrongly accused suspect. This helped to create sympathy for the victim and to make the detective's job more challenging. The detective's use of disguises and gadgets. Nick Carter often used disguises and gadgets to help him solve his cases. This helped to add excitement and intrigue to the stories, and it also helped to establish the detective as a modern and sophisticated figure. Nick Carter's influence on the detective genre is undeniable. He helped to popularize the idea of the private detective, and he established many of the conventions that are still used in detective stories today. 
His legacy continues to inspire writers and readers of detective fiction alike. And, speaking of inspiring, let's move on to the final episode of The 1915 Mystery, Blood Will Tell, or Nick Carter's Play in Politics. Chapter 7. A Blow from Behind Nick Carter did not hurry to arrive at the suburban residence of Mr. John Madison. He hardly expected, in fact, to find him at home before early evening, but he wanted to see him when he did arrive. It was close upon six o'clock when Nick entered a gate leading into the extensive side grounds, and dusk then had deepened into darkness. Only a single light was to be seen in the imposing wooden dwelling, and that shone out faintly through the glass walls of a large conservatory attached to the house. It came from a window beyond the projecting hothouse. That doesn't look as if many of the family are at home, thought Nick, stepping lightly over the gravel walk that wound between the trees of a park and led to the side door of the house. It may be that only his wife and children are here. Those servants are essential to... Hmm, Nick abruptly digressed. It is barely possible that he has sent them away, servants and all. If he really is engaged in the knavery, I suspect discretion certainly would impel some such step. Nick turned the corner of the conservatory, then saw a brighter beam of light from under the lowered shade of a library window. He crept near enough to peer into the room. There was only one occupant, the man the detective was seeking. Mr. John Madison was seated at a flat, cloth-topped desk in the middle of a spacious room. It was covered with pamphlets, documents, and writing materials. A tall library lamp with a pale green silk shade stood nearby. Its rays lent an unnatural hue to the man's face, a sort of ghastly greenish pallor seen neither in life nor death. He was a powerful, imposing man with broad shoulders and a large head. He was smoothly shaved with strong, aggressive features, a square jaw and thin lips, heavy brows, and a mop of black hair. He sat gazing intently at the top of his desk. But Nick saw at a glance that his mind was elsewhere. His thin lips were drawn. His heavy brows hung like frowning battlement over his vacant eyes. His large hands were gripping the arms of his chair. Nick moved on quietly to the side door and touched the electric bell. It was not answered for several moments. Then a heavy tread could be heard in the side hall. No servant ever treads like that, thought Nick. He could not hold his jaw. The door was opened by Mr. Madison himself. He turned a switch key in near the casing, and flood of light filled the side hall and fell on the figure and face of his visit. Madison recoiled slightly, then instantly caught himself. Oh, why? Good evening, Mr. Carter, said he with his sonorous voice, only a bit unsteady on the first two words. Good evening, Mr. Madison. Well, this is a surprise. Walk in, said the lawyer. I am glad to see you. Nick entered, smiling and shaking the other's extended hand. It felt cold and clammy in that of the detective. I came out this way on business, Mr. Madison, so I dropped in for only a short call, Nick observed. I want to discuss the approaching election with you, or one feature of it. Ah, is that so? I hardly expected, nevertheless, to find you at this hour. Nick added. I have not been in town today, Madison replied deliberately. No? 
I have not been feeling very well. My wife and children are visiting in Boston for a few days, and, and I have given the servants a like holiday. Come into the library. Uh, sit down. Help yourself. There are matches in the tray. Madison placed a box of cigars on the desk while speaking, then resumed the swivel chair from which he had arisen to admit his visitor. Nick had removed his hat and overcoat and left them in the side hall. He took a chair directly opposite the burly politician. He had, apparently, no aggressive intentions. The aroma of pinks and heliotrope was wafted from an alcove nearby from which a door led into the conservatory. The door was open a few inches, admitting the scent of the flowers. "'You're not seriously ill, I hope,' Nick remarked while he accepted a cigar and lit it. "'Oh, no!' Madison shook his head and ran his fingers through his hair. Uh, it's a touch of bronchitis, brought on by too much speaking in political rallies. That raises the deuce with one's throat. A day or two of rest will restore me. Oh, I, I hope so, said Nick. You said, I think, that you wish to discuss some feature of the present campaign. To what did you refer? Nick dropped his burned match into a cuspidor. To the hard fight you and Gordon are making to carry your congressional district, he remarked hooking his thumbs through the armholes of his vest and blowing a wreath of smoke toward the ceiling. It is a hard fight, Carter, no mistake. Do you expect to win it out? I hope to, of course. You will leave no stone unturned, I suppose? No stone that can legitimately be turned. I shall disturb no other. Hmm, well, that goes without saying. But why your interest in the fight? Madison asked deliberately in subdued yet sonorous tones. I was not aware that you ever dipped into politics beyond casting over. Well, not often. Nick admitted occasionally, however, I make a play in politics. This happens to be one of the occasions. There was an indescribably ominous intensity in the steady gaze with which the eyes of these two men were fixed upon each other. Not for an instant did either deviate or waver. Not for a moment, moreover was the surrounding silence broken by any sound save their voices. Yet not once had either been raised above an ordinary pit or tinctured any betrayal of their true feelings. Invariable suavity and politeness, rather, seemed to imbue them. Why this occasion, Mr. Carter? Madison questioned. Why your interest in this particular fight? Because of what befell your opponent this morning, said Nick. Befell, Mr. Gordon? Yes. And what was that? He was arrested on suspicion of having murdered a woman last night in a Columbus Avenue flat. Madison heard him without a change of countenance. Gordon arrested on such a charge as that? Is it possible? He replied. It is more than possible. It is a fact. Well, I have not seen today's papers, Madison said indifferently. There is no report of it in the papers. No? None whatever. Why is that? Because I prevented it, Madison, and had Gordon liberated, said Nick. I knew publicity might ruin his chances of election. You are a Gordon man, then. Madison now spoke with a covert sneer. Well, yes, to be perfectly frank with you, bowed Nick. So I suppressed the newspaper stories and had Gordon liberated and the accusation killed. That is, the little political play I have made. Aside from that, however, I had other reasons for making What reasons, Cotton? I do not believe Gordon committed the crime, said Nick. I have, in fact, found positive proof that he did not. Indeed. Someone, then, must have blundered. 
The last vestige of color had now left Madison's face. His strong features were taking on the haggard look of a long illness. Not once did his intense eyes leave those of the detective, however, or his powerful figure relaxed from its rigid attitude of strained attention. Yes, someone blundered Nick agreed, bowing again. The blunder is going to prove costly, too, to the persons involved. The victim of the murder, Madison, was a woman named Matilda Lancy. Indeed. Madison's face hardened perceptibly. I was acquainted with her. We used to be friendly, in a way. Used to? That is what I said. I have not had her to lunch or in any other way associated with her for months. Your friendship with her ended, I infer. Yes, that's about the size of it. Has she approached you in any designing way since the termination of your friendliness? How designing? Madison demanded, eyebrows drooping. What do you mean, Carter? I mean with threats of blackmail or anything of that kind. I don't recall that she has. You would be likely to remember it, wouldn't you? Certainly, Madison bluntly admitted. But there is nothing in that. How could she blackmail me? By threatening to publish your compromising letters, Mr. Madison, which you employed crooks to steal from her, and which last night was accomplished resulting in her death at their hands, Nick now said more sternly. Madison's teeth met with a snap. He lurched forward in his chair, eyes blazing, and banged his fist upon the desk. See here, Carter, he cried with a volcanic outbreak of rage. If you have come to insult me, or— Oh, don't get excited, Nick interrupted, checking him with a quick, commanding gesture. There is nothing in that, Madison, and you ought to know it. I will tell you with very few words why I have come here. Hear them like a man, not turned bull in a china shop. You know that neither bluster nor bluff had any effect upon me. Madison straightened up again and governed his resentment, though it still glowed in his eyes and caused a vicious twitching of his thin lips. Out with it, then, he said harshly. Why are you here, Carter? What do you want? The truth, said Nick shortly. About what? The murder of Tilly Lancy. I know nothing about that. I know, Madison, that that is a falsehood, Nick said sternly. I know that she was killed by persons employed by you to commit that crime or to recover the letters you have written to her. I know who the culprits are, some of them, and within six hours I will have them behind prison bars. One is Cora Cavendish, a disreputable friend of the murdered woman. Another is Mortimer Deland, the notorious English crook. I know so much, Madison, in fact, that unless you confess the whole truth here and now, I will railroad you to the tombs for safekeeping until— Stop! Stop! You have said enough, Madison interrupted with a groan. I will tell you, Carter. I will confess the whole truth. I am in wrong, horribly wrong, but I will tell you all. I will— an oath interrupted him. An oath and a blow. Both came from a man who had stealthily approached the house, peered in through the window, stolen in through the open conservatory, all so noiselessly that he had reached the alcove unheard, and from which he leaped, and, with a single bound, reached the unsuspecting detective. A blackjack in his uplifted hand fell like a flash, fell squarely on the detective's head, meeting it with a single sickening thud, and Nick Carter 
pitched forward and rolled out of his chair, crashing to the floor as dead to the world as if he had been felled by a thunderbolt. His assailant was Mortimer Deland. Chapter 8 Driven to the Wall John Madison had sprung to his feet, uttering a cry, vainly attempting to prevent the lightning-like assault. But it had been made so quickly and with such vicious determination that Nick himself had received not the slightest warning of the terrible blow. "'Good heavens! What have you done? You have killed him!' gasped Madison when the detective fell insensible to the floor. Deland turned on him like a flash, with features distorted and murder in his eyes. He whipped out a revolver and thrust its muzzle against the lawyer's burly form. "'Sit down!' he cried with a wolfish snarl. Sit down or I'll send you after him. I'm here for business and you will find a minute. Madison shrank instinctively from the deadly weapon, sinking back on his chair as ghastly with fear and dismay as if the hand of death already had been laid upon him. Sit quiet, snarled Deland, still with terrible ferocity. If you stir, hang you, I'll send a bullet into you. Madison's only reply was a hopeless groan. Deland placed his revolver on the chair from which the detective had fallen face down on the floor, with one arm crooked under his battered head. Crouching beside him, with one eye constantly on the lawyer, Deland drew up Nick's coat and got his revolver, thrusting it into his own pocket. Then, fishing out the detective's handcuffs, he drew Nick's arms behind him and locked the iron around his wrists. All was accomplished in a very few seconds, and with the brutal energy and determination of one ready to meet opposition with instant bloodshed. Rising, Deland then dragged Nick a few feet from the desk, to which he had turned, seizing his revolver and taking the chair from which the detective had fallen. Killed him, eh? He now snarled coldly, fixing his glittering eyes on the ghastly face of the lawyer. It will be a good thing for you, for both of us, if I have killed him, that's the only look in we've got. If I haven't done it, blast him, I'll do it later. Madison pulled himself together with an effort and straightened up in his chair. He already knew how lawless and desperate a knave confronted him, but his first flush of fear had subsided. Don't talk of killing, Deland, he hoarsely protested. There has been killing enough, more than enough, God knows. God knows, too, that more may be necessary, Deland returned with icy austerity. Why do you say that? Why necessary? For your own safety and mine, declared Deland with merciless severity. That's a clever question to come from you, Madison, after hearing the accusations of this infernal dick. But oh, I know what he's been saying and why he said it. I've been listening outside of the window and in the conservatory. Luckily, the outer door was unlocked, and that in the alcove open, so that I could get in noiselessly. But for that, Madison, it might have been all over but the shouting, all over for you but paying the price. I shall pay no price for crimes which you stop right there, snapped Deland, jerking his chair nearer the table. You will pay what I dictate for what has been done. Madison recoiled involuntarily from the fierce, threatening eyes of the vicious rascal. "'What you dictate, what I dictate, yes,' Deland cut in sternly. "'I heard what you finally said to this cursed dick. He had driven you to the wall, 
You were ready to throw up your hands, to squeal on your pals, to confess the whole business. Do you think I would stand for that? <laughs> not much, Madison, not much. But he knows. I don't care what he knows. We must prevent him from making use of it. Oh, impossible. Wait and see. Twice this cursed Carter has foiled my cleverly laid plans, and twice he has sent me to prison. There shall be no third time, not on your life. I've got it in for him good and hard. I will send him to the devil on greased rollers. I will send you with him, Madison, if you balk against my demands. You are quite capable of it, Deland. Yes, you'll find I am. What are your demands? Madison now asked with a growl, apprehending no immediate violence. What do you mean by that? You know what I mean. On the contrary, you'll put over no lawyer's trick on me, Deland again interrupted. Cora Cavendish has been out here, hasn't she? Yes, she was here two hours ago. Why do you question me, then? She told you what I want. You mean, Deland, that she delivered your message? What's the difference? I sent her out here to get the first installment you promised us. So she said. The situation now has changed, so changed for the worse, that I now want all that you promised us, Deland added with sinister vehemence. I not only want it, Madison, <laughs> but I am going to have it. No, Deland, you are not, said Madison with more firmness than yet he had displayed. What's that? Deland's jaws closed with an audible snap. You heard what I said. There was a moment or two of silence. Deland appeared briefly staggered by the altered attitude of the lawyer. He was not alone, moreover, in hearing that last semi-defiant remark. Nick Carter was reviving. Inured to hard knocks, his head had sustained much better than either of his companions suspected the blow it had received. Nick heard the remark, however, much as one hears in a dream, or the voice of one at a distance. It began to bring him to himself, nevertheless, and with slowly returning consciousness, a realization of his position and of what had occurred. With these came, too, a more keen appreciation of the entire situation, and the cobwebs then cleared from his brain more rapidly. A definite thought had leaped up in his mind, quickly followed by another and another. By Jove, I was knocked out. Madison has another visit. One of his confederates, one of the gang of crooks, showed up here. It is to him he is talking. Nick had not stirred, and did not stir. I'll wait for more was the thought that followed. I will hear what is said. It may be Deland himself. I can rely upon Chick and Patsy. Stretched prostrate on the floor, a few feet from the desk, with his face upturned in the full rays of the lamp, Nick had not ventured to lift so much as a corner of an eyelid, lest the movement of it might be seen and rightly interpreted. He continued motionless and silent, as if still dead to the world, and in another moment, the familiar voice of Deland fell upon his ears and convinced him of his assailant's identity. Yes, I heard what you said, Madison, he replied with sudden ominous coldness. I heard what you said, but you do not mean it. On the contrary, Deland, I do mean it, declared the lawyer more forcibly. That you will not settle with me and my pals for what we have done? That is precisely what I mean. 
By heaven, then you shall pay the price in another way, cried Deland with renewed ferocity. You shall meet the fate which... They are here now. We will see. We will see. You'll not be alone in seeing, thought Nick, now comparatively himself again. A low, peculiar whistle had come from within the conservatory. It brought the land to his feet on the instant, turning quickly toward the alcove through which he had entered. Three men now emerged from it, following close on the heels of one another. Though all were well-dressed, all were of dark and sinister aspect, with faces that wore the unmistakable stamp of the crook. Nick seized this opportunity for a momentary glance at them, and he instantly recognized all three as East Side gangsters, as Patsy Garvin had identified them by the names he had heard mentioned by Deland. Holy smoke! exclaimed the foremost with a glance at the motionless form of the detective. Is the world coming to an end? How did you get the big dick, Morty? Plugger Flynn, as bad an egg as ever was laid, thought Nick. I had to get him, Plugger, and get him good, said Deland more coolly. He had Madison on the run. He did, eh? Flynn glared at the lawyer. Not going to squeal, was he? That's right. Hang him, then. I'll close his trap so he can't squeal. As sure as you keep your gun in your pocket, Daggett, snapped the land when he saw the other reaching for a revolver. There'll be time enough for that, if it comes to that kind of a play. But we've got him so he'll not squeal, and where he'll be glad to settle. You've arrived just in time. We hiked out here on the run after seeing Cora, nodded Flynn. She told you the whole business, Morty, put in a slender, crafty-looking rascal known as Buck Toby, chiefly because of his passion for bucking a faro game. But how did the dick get so wise to so much? Don't ask me, said Deland. How in thunder do I know? Well, does he know about the red liquor? Does he know that it came from the skirt? And that I was the one that sprinkled it on the banker? If he does, by thunder, and that you three ginks croaked, shut up, snapped Deland. It now makes no difference what he knows. We'll fix him so that he can make no use of it. That's got to be done, Plugger Flynn declared with a growl. And the sooner it's done, Morty, the better, added Daggett, glaring down at the detective. It'll be a good job to wipe out this dick. If the rest of his push know too much, we'll croak them also. There'll be enough time for all that, said Deland with characteristic assurance. I first will finish with this infernal squealer and find out where he stands. He'll settle by thunder, or we'll stand him on his head snarled Daggett, jerking a chair toward the desk and sitting down. Get after him, Deland. You've been doing the talking. Chapter 9 The Closed Door Nick Carter needed to hear no more than the significant remarks already made, nor really needed to have heard them, in fact, to convince him that his earlier suspicions and deductions, as well as the theory he had formed concerning the terrible crime, were almost absolutely correct. Nick now felt reasonably sure, too, since learning that Cora Cavendish had sent the three crooks out there, that Patsy must have got on her track before that was done, and he was borrowing no trouble as to the outcome of his own situation. The only point that Nick now wanted to clear up, in fact, was the precise relations that had existed between Madison and this gang of thugs, and he knew that he was in a fair way of doing so. John Madison had not stirred from the swivel chair in which he was seated, nor had he spoken 
or even changed countenance during the vicious remark that had passed between the several crooks. He really appeared indifferent to them, and he now wore the grimly determined aspect of a man who had made up his mind what to do, and had the nerve and stamina to do it. Deland was quick to observe all this, and his evil eyes had an uglier gleam when he resumed his seat at the desk to continue his talk with the lawyer, while Daggett, Flynn, and Toby occupied chairs nearby. Now, Madison, let's get right down to cases, Deland began, whipping out each word with ominous asperity. I'll say what I mean, and you do the same. You are up against one of two things. You're going to settle this, as you agreed to do, or you're going to be sent up for the murder of Tilly Lancey. There is no middle course for you. Hmm, I see, thought Nick, already sizing up the situation. No middle course for him, eh? I'll lay one out for him, then, unless I'm much mistaken. Madison did not reply for a moment. He drew up his powerful figure a little higher in his chair and bestowed a frowning glance upon each of the rascals confronting him. His gaze finally settled upon Deland's evil face, however, and remained there. I will be sent up for the murder of Tilly Lancey, will I? he slowly answered. That's what you will, Deland nodded. That's one course. How can I be sent up for a crime? You scoundrels committed. We'll swear it on to you, and we have the stuff to fix it so it will stay. I've got the bunch of letters you wrote to her. We'll chuck them in for evidence. We'll frame you up all right, and in a way that will let us down dead easy. You can bank on that. And bank on it good and strong, too, put in Plugger Flynn, pounding the desktop with his fingers. You fellows are a fine gang with which to do business said Madison with manifest contempt in his deep voice. Either one of you would double-cross his own mother. I ought to have known it in the beginning, but I was caught by the bait you threw me. The only other course is for me to settle, you say. You heard what I said, snapped the land. I'll have my say now for a moment, Madison returned. You approached me a week ago, Deland, with a proposition that in a way appealed to me. You said you could get from Tilly Lancy a number of letters with which she has threatened me and also that you could do it in such a way as to have it publicly appear that my political opponent, Arthur Gordon, had been trying to buy them and was secretly an intimate friend of that woman. Well, come to the point, said Deland. We admit all that. Good enough, thought Nick, calmly taking it all in. That admission will cost you something, Deland, and may save him. I'll wait and see which way the cat jumps. I apprehended defeat in the coming election, Madison went on deliberately. For that reason only, your proposition appealed to me. I foresaw that I could, with those letters restored to me, and Gordon, in a measure defamed, easily carry the election. I asked you what you would accept for doing the job. And you agreed to pay for it, ten thousand dollars, and told us to go ahead said Deland. True, Madison darkly nodded. But I did not agree to bloodshed. You did not tell me that a murder was to be committed. You did not even hint that Tilly Lancey's life was to be taken. Not for a moment, you double-dyed knave. Would I have considered that hideous proposition? 
You said... Never mind what we said, the land cut in sharply. We know what we said and to what you agreed. We have our own way of doing things, and we have delivered the goods. It is now up to you to settle. We have put Gordon in wrong. I have your letters in my pocket. You're going to settle, too, or stop right there, Deland, Madison interrupted, leaning forward to bang the desk with his fist. There will be no settlement between you fellows and me. As I told Cora Cavendish two hours ago, you will not get a copper from me. We won't, eh? Deland's hand went to his hip pocket. Not one copper. Madison thundered. You say I have only one of two courses. I say, however, that I have a third course. That's the course I will take. There is only one way for me to settle this infamous business, and that was shown me by this man on the floor. I will confess the truth, take my medicine for what I have done, and accomplish one other thing, that of sending you miscreants to the fate you deserve. That's the way I'll settle with you, and the only way. It would be hard to say what might have followed but for one startling and utterly unexpected incident. Nick Carter sat straight up on the floor and shouted, Good for you, Madison. Stick to that, and I'll pull you out. Against any man but Gordon, I'd give you my vote. Nick had more than one reason for this sudden outbreak. From where he was lying on the floor, he could see through the alcove and into the dimly lighted conservatory. He could see Chick Carter and Patsy Garvin crouching there, each with revolvers drawn. Their timely arrival was not due to anything extraordinary. Patsy had trailed Cora Cavendish to an east side saloon and had seen her meet Flynn and give him to Land's instructions. Patsy then had followed Flynn and later Daggett and Toby, learning positively in the meantime that they were to join DeLand in Madison's residence. Seizing an opportunity to telephone home also, Patsy found that Chick had returned, and quick arrangements were made to meet on the Madison place. They had done so just in time to see the three crooks enter the conservatory, whither they soon stealthily followed them. Before Nick's ringing words were fairly uttered, DeLand and the three gangsters were on their feet and reaching for their weapons. That door, snapped the land, pointing to the alcove. Close it and lock it, Daggett. Pull down that curtain, Toby, down to the sill. Not settle, eh? We'll settle the hash of both, then, before... You're already too late, Nick shouted. He would have added a word or two, but they would have been lost in the tumult that then began. Both Flynn and Daggett had started into the alcove to obey Delance's instructions and each had been met with a crashing blow from Chick and Patsy, dealt with precision and violence that sent both of them headlong to the floor. Before either could rise, both detectives were in the room and had them covered, while a third revolver caused Toby to turn from the window and throw up his hands. Deland had been the first to realize the actual situation, and, like a flash, he had darted toward the hall. Chick saw him as the rascal passed through the door. After him, Patsy, he yelled with a directing glance. I can handle these three. Patsy turned and darted into the hall. As he came through the doorway, the crash of Deland's revolver drowned all other sounds. 
The bullet splintered the door casing over Patsy's head. Another ball whizzed by Patsy's head. The hall was only dimly lighted by the rays that came from the lamp in the side hall, and for an instant Patsy could not see his quarry. The flash from his revolver on the second shot revealed him. Deland was darting up the main stairway, not daring to wait to open a door, and evidently bent upon reaching the veranda roof and thence making his escape. Patsy now saw him plainly, and that he again was about to fire, and he dropped like a flash to his knees. He was not quite quick enough, however. Bang went the weapon, and the bullet tore through the flesh on Patsy's left shoulder. He felt the sting and the gush of hot blood. He was up on the instant, revolver level, and was pumping lead up the stairway with the rapidity of a gatling gun. The report of the weapon was mingled with another sound, the crash of a body at Patsy's feet. Deland had pitched sideways over the baluster rail with four bullets in his breast. He was stone dead before he struck the hall floor. Patsy Garvin had closed the eternal door on the most vicious crook then at large. All that remains to be told of the strange and steering case may be told with a few and simple words. The three crooks, and subsequently Cora Cavendish, were arrested and later received life sentences for complicity in the murder of Tilly Lancey. They made no fight against the evidence Nick Carter had obtained. It also appeared that the crime had been framed up by Cora and Deland, as Nick had suspected, and that not only they, but also Flynn and Daggett were in the flat when Gordon visited the woman. Nick's suspicions and deductions had, in fact, been correct from the start. John Madison confessed his part in the affair to the court, and Nick's intervention in his behalf resulted in his discharge from custody. He was ignominiously defeated in the election, however, and he moved west with his family the following month. Arthur Gordon was elected with flying colors, and, well, it would be vain to attempt to describe his gratitude for Nick Carter and his assistance. There are sentiments that language cannot express. Mortimer Deland was buried, his true name and history with him, save his criminal history, on the day after he was shot. The end. Well, gang, that concludes another amazing story from the files of Nick Carter. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed narrating it. Coming up on the podcast, we begin another Nick Carter mystery, this one called A Fatal Message, or Nick Carter's Slender Clue, which will be the final Nick Carter mystery this season. Following that story, I will narrate two creepy stories from the annals of public domain for the Halloween season. Then I'm taking a one-week break for my birthday in November, and following that, I will read two holiday stories that I was hoping to read last year, and close off the year by reading all five staves of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, which I started to do last year, but time and a throat virus put an end to that real early. May I remind you, friends, that if you decide to become a monthly supporter of the show, I will provide you with a coupon code for unlimited free shipping at the merchandise store through the end of the year. Of course, this includes anything that you might want to purchase for yourself or other friends and family members for the holiday season. And with that coming up, well, it's something to think about. 
For information on how to become a monthly supporter, please visit the website or just follow the link on your favorite podcast app. Okay, rambling is done for now, friends. I appreciate you putting up with it. As always, gang, thanks for listening. Keep sharing the stories and be a good human. (laughs) Bye for now.